Hello, and welcome to Mr. Benson's Extraordinarium. This episode, I have an extraordinary tale about a frail elderly man, at least by the standards of his time, who was almost indestructible. I have a tale of an extraordinary architectural oversight, and a tale of bloodless warfare tactics, which manifested as quite possibly the world's biggest ever practical joke. Our first tale takes place in 1930s New York. If you're my age, you may have been a fan of the alternative funk, metal, difficult to categorise 90s band called Primus, and if so, you may be aware of a musical interlude on the album Frizzle Fry called You Can't Kill Michael Malloy, but few would know the provenance. Evidently it was about a man called Michael Malloy who couldn't be killed. That last bit is a tad misleading, however. He could in fact be killed, but with extraordinary difficulty. Known as Iron Mike, the Irish Rasputin, or my personal favourite, Mike the Durable, very little else is known of him, other than he was born in the early 1870s in County Donegal and migrated to the United States around 1910. Malloy had somewhat of a problem with alcoholism and was unable to maintain a job or a relationship for very long, and the stock market crash of 1929 certainly didn't help improve his circumstances. By 1933, he was around 60 years old and living on the streets of New York. He was unemployed, advancing in years, homeless, and had a voracious appetite for drink. 1933 was the last year of prohibition in the United States and Malloy, with his alcohol dependency, relied on illegally supplied alcohol from underground bars known as speakeasies. Malloy's local speakeasy, located on 3rd Avenue in the Bronx, was owned by one Tony Marino, and the unemployed Malloy had immense difficulty paying his tab. So what a beautiful feeling he must have held in his heart when he entered the establishment on a freezing night in January to be warmly greeted by the owner and a small group of regulars and told that his tab wasn't a problem. Tonight, he drank for free. Now, some might find the uncharacteristic charitability of Mr. Marino a tad suspicious, but it seems Malloy, who had a reputation as a trusting and affable sort of fellow, just accepted his changed fortunes and ordered a whiskey, followed by another, then another, and so on. He laughed, he joked, and he enjoyed the company of familiar faces. Those familiar faces were that of barman Red Murphy, fruit seller Daniel Kreisberg, cab driver Hershey Green, undertaker Frank Pasqua, and Tony Marino himself. They drank, told jokes, roared with laughter, and a good night was had by all. Little did Michael Malloy know that his friends were trying to kill him, albeit with kindness. The Depression of the 1930s was a time of great financial hardship. In the US, the jobless rate reached 25% and people were desperate. Plans to obtain more money, some money or any money, were being hatched in speakeasies all over the country, including the one owned by Tony Marino. A few weeks earlier, bartender Red Murphy, on behalf of the group that would become known as the Murder Trust, had taken out three life insurance policies for a gentleman 
by the name of Nicholas Mellory. All they needed to claim the money was a Nicholas Mellory, and he needed to be dead, preferably by an accident which would see the payout double. Michael Malloy, an ageing homeless man with an enormous propensity for drinking, seemed like a good candidate. The destitute Malloy had been cutting out his tab at the speakeasy by cleaning up and doing odd jobs and had become a regular face. They knew he had no family, he seemed frail from chronic alcoholism, and he probably wouldn't be missed, and with a little nudge in the right direction, he might just drink himself to death. And so it was that Malloy was treated to as much alcohol as he could drink, in the hopes that nature would take its course. But Malloy had remarkable powers of recovery and kept coming back for more. Day after day, he drank himself unconscious, but the next day, he woke up, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, and thirsty. This would go on for over a week. Perhaps, they thought, the Grim Reaper might need a little extra incentive in the form of methanol or wood alcohol. Drinking four fluid ounces can result in permanent damage, blindness, and even death. Unless, of course, your name is Michael Malloy. Then you just drink it up neat, pass out in the corner, wake up a bit dusty, and perch at the bar again, actually asking for more shots of whatever he had been drinking. Apparently, he liked it. His survival wasn't a miracle, it has some basis in science. If you already have a skinful of ethanol or normal alcohol, the harmful effects of methanol are diminished. I'm told the same applies to antifreeze, which is fortunate for Michael Malloy because that's what they tried next. Malloy survived. Drinking poison didn't seem to be going to kill him, so perhaps food poisoning would. They fed him oysters pickled in methanol, and Malloy survived. They fed him rancid sardines in a sandwich with metal shavings, carpet tacks, broken glass, and rat poison, and Malloy survived. So Tony Marino decided to let the elements dispense with Malloy, and he had form. A girlfriend of his had died of hypothermia not long beforehand, in bed, as it should happen, when somehow she got incredibly drunk, took a shower in her nightdress, and while still wet, got into the bed with the window open during a New York winter, which can reach 25 degrees or more below zero. Her life had been insured as well. What a coincidence. So Malloy was plied with drink until unconscious, taken to a nearby park, dumped in the snow and ice, and doused with a bucket of water for good measure. Malloy survived. Not even a sniffle. By this stage, the murder trust needed the insurance payout quite badly. They needed Malloy to die so they could recoup the money they had spent trying to kill him. So a traffic accident was tried next. The plan was that cab driver Hershey Green would run him down with his taxi. The first couple of attempts failed as Malloy was so drunk he staggered out of the taxi's way, but on the third attempt, he was hit. Green even reversed over him for good measure. But... Malloy survived. He recuperated in hospital for several weeks, during which time the murder trust was at their wit's end. Having had to make a snappy getaway due to an oncoming car, the murder trust had no idea what had become of his body. No corpse equals no insurance payout, 
They began scouring newspapers for a death notice, but he was gone. Assuming that he was buried as a John Doe in an unmarked grave somewhere, the bitterly disappointed murder trust couldn't believe their eyes when Malloy walked in. I couldn't satisfactorily verify this next part, but according to legend, he stated, without a hint of irony, that he was dying for a drink. It turned out he was so drunk on the night he was run down that he had no recollection of the events. He simply awoke in hospital, where he had been recuperating for the past few weeks. The group of would-be murderers then attempted to hire hitmen, including a machine gun attack, but the price was too high and the idea was quickly abandoned. So one night, they simply clubbed him to death while he was passed out drunk. And so they thought. Malloy survived. He woke up, perched at the bar, and began his usual drinking marathon. You can only imagine the expressions on the despondent murder trust. They decided instead to simply kill another drunkard called Joe Murray, plant their fake ID on him and use him to claim the insurance, but he survived too. By this stage, Tony Marino, probably with an air of serenity only betrayed by gritted teeth and one twitching eyelid, had had quite enough. This time, they took the drunken, unconscious Malloy to Murphy's apartment, put him in bed, attached a hose to the gas line and put it down his throat, then waited and checked his vital signs until they were absolutely certain he was dead. Malloy didn't survive. A doctor named Frank Manzella received a $100 bribe to issue a death certificate with the cause of death given as pneumonia. Frank Pasca, the group's undertaker, quickly buried Malloy, and the murder trust were finally set to collect the payout, except for an inconvenience by the name of Tough Tony, a local gangland member who had been killed. Murphy was taken into custody as a material witness and was unable to go and collect the money. Pasca, it was decided, would go in his place. He collected from one insurance agency with ease, but the next insurance company, Prudential, well, they wanted to see the body, which he had already buried, cheaply, not even bothering to embalm it. The police were also beginning to hear rumours circulating about an indestructible derelict when they received a tip-off from the Prudential Insurance Company who had found Malloy's hasty burial somewhat suspicious, an investigation would lead to Malloy being exhumed, and though forensic science was still in its infancy, they could tell that Malloy had died of carbon monoxide poisoning. Ironically, it was Pasca's failure to embalm the body through his haste and penny-pinching that meant the gas remained in Malloy's blood. The gang was sweating bullets, and Hershey Green, the cab driver, decided to preempt the inevitable, and he confessed. This turned out to be a good strategy. He became a witness for the prosecution and was ultimately sentenced to 10 years. The rest of the murder trust would die in the electric chair. Unlike Michael Malloy, they would never have any extraordinary tales of resurrection ever being told about them. Perhaps, like me, you have childhood memories of playing with a magnifying glass, concentrating the sun's rays to a fine point 
that created enough heat that timber would begin smouldering and one could make etchings. Of course, you don't see kids playing with them very much anymore. The risk of starting a fire or the neighbourhood bully focusing his newfound godlike powers onto hapless insects being two of the most obvious reasons, but most of us are at least aware of the phenomenon nonetheless, and it's far from a recent discovery. The ancient Greek mathematician and philosopher Archimedes is said to have used a parabolic reflector to focus sunlight into a heat ray, or death ray, and direct it onto approaching ships during the siege of Syracuse. Modern reenactments during the late 20th century and early 21st century have come up with conflicting results regarding the effectiveness of the so-called death ray. One experiment from the early 1970s saw a replica Roman warship burst into flame almost immediately, while in 2006 the television program Mythbusters was unable to achieve the temperature required for auto-ignition, but did manage some smouldering and scorching. Any way you care to look at it, a parabolic reflector will significantly increase temperatures at the point the light is concentrated on. So you would think it would be a pretty daft idea to put a giant parabolic reflector in the middle of one of the world's most densely populated and busiest cities, wouldn't you? Martin Lindsay had parked his car, a Jaguar, in Eastcheap in the English capital of London and would return to the car upon completion of his business approximately two hours later to find a photographer snapping pictures of the car. Here's a quote from Mr. Lindsay, taken from the BBC News website. I was walking down the road and saw a photographer taking photos and asked what's happening. The photographer asked me, have you seen that car? The owner won't be happy. I said, I am the owner. Crikey, that's awful. End quote. The car, you see, had warped panels and plastic items such as the mirrors had partially melted like the car had been exposed to extremely high temperatures, which it had. The culprit? A 38-storey building a few blocks away on Fenchurch Street, known as the walkie-talkie due to its shape, which is wider at the top than the base. The south-facing exterior of the building is a concave shape and covered in reflective glass, inadvertently creating a 38-storey parabolic reflector in London's financial centre. Mr. Lindsay found a note on his windscreen from the developers apologising and offering to pay for repairs. Not the only problem their accidental recreation of Archimedes' death ray had caused, with nearby shops being compensated for damage ranging from bubbled paint to a carpet so scorched it almost caught fire. The building's nickname would gradually change from walkie-talkie to the walkie-scorchy. It has since been fitted with a shade sail, and no further damage has been reported. It's easy to sit here behind a microphone with absolutely no knowledge of engineering and bugger all knowledge of architecture and cast aspersions on the creators of the walkie-scorchy, and I shall refrain from doing so, but I have to say that the fact this slight oversight wasn't picked up until things started getting burned, I find that extraordinary. There are innumerable tales out there of the underdog fighting back against an oppressor. Unsurprisingly, a good many were set against the backdrop of the Second World War. Not all of them, however, are grand tales of individual heroism. The story I'm about to tell 
is of an instance where Norwegian fishermen frustrated and hampered the capabilities of the entire German U-boat fleet, without a single shot being fired. Norway during World War II was determined to remain neutral. Nazi Germany had offered Norway non-aggression pacts, but the Norwegian government felt this would put them at odds with Great Britain. And while trying to stay out of the conflict, the refusal to sign non-aggression treaties with Germany would give the Nazis pretext to invade Norway. After resisting for a couple of months during early 1940, the Norwegians capitulated, and Norway fell under Nazi occupation. It wasn't very long before the Norwegians formed a well-organised and effective resistance movement, with neighbour Sweden allowing training camps on Swedish soil along the border. They also received help from the United States OSS and the British SOE intelligence organisations. Apart from the kinds of sabotage you would normally expect from a wartime resistance movement, the Norwegians, it seems, had something of a sense of humour hampering German efforts not so much with bullets than with practical jokes. One such instance was the distribution of condoms to German soldiers laced with itching powder. But probably the greatest prank pulled off by the Norwegian resistance, indeed, possibly the greatest prank that I'm aware of in all of recorded history, would come about when the occupying forces needed rations for their submarine fleet, the U-boats. Norway was and still is famous for its canned sardines, and canned sardines store quite well, which is useful for U-boats spending protracted periods out at sea. So the Germans requisitioned an entire year's catch of sardines. The Norwegians weren't too happy about this and got word to the British Special Operations Executive requesting as much croton oil as was practicable. The croton oil was then used in the canning process, with the powerful flavour of the sardines masking the flavour. Why would they do that, did I hear you ask? Well, croton oil, much like castor oil, is a very powerful laxative. There's not a lot in the way of reliable data about the overall effect on Germany's war effort, but imagine, if you will, an airtight vessel a mere 214 feet long, or 65 metres, that contains anywhere between 25 and 50 men, with a very bad case of the runs, and only two toilets. You could safely say their progress would have been somewhat slowed. An extraordinary act of sabotage, with no recorded fatalities, despite the number of explosions. You've been listening to Mr. Benson's Extraordinarium. Created, researched and hosted by me, Dan Benson. If you enjoyed the show, hit the subscribe button and continue to join me as I uncover extraordinary stories from around the globe and throughout history. Till next time, peace, love, light. Take care, catch ya.